if you're new, uh, normally what we do for, for uh, redemption is we go through books in the Bible. That's something that we feel like is just a healthy, very healthy way um, to understand the Bible. There's a lot of uh, illiteracy when it comes to the scripture, and I don't just mean um, outside of the church, in, inside the church as well. And so um, we usually do that, but we will occasionally stop and take a break, maybe a, a, a one Sunday or two Sundays, and, and kind of talk about a certain topic. And this morning, we are going to talk about fostering and adopting. Now, if you're new, you're like, oh my Lord, what did I get into? There's about 100 babies lined up in the lobby waiting for me as I get out here, okay? No, um, I, I want to talk about this, and I'll explain why in, in a moment, but um, this is kind of just an offshoot. What we're going to do next week is start going for 10 weeks in the book of Psalms, and as we go through that book, you're going to hear different uh, guys come up and teach, and, and it should be uh, uh, really exciting. So here, here's where I want to actually start, okay? Before we get into I'm going to show my cards really early as I walk us through this, okay? Um, I think something that needs to drive the Christian life is a healthy view of judgment, okay? Now, hear me. There are unhealthy views of judgment, right? You have the A-frame dude on Mill Avenue and, and First Friday who's yelling at people. He may have a view of the judgment and may believe it in such a way that he has a, a sign on his body, but the reality is it's not a healthy view of judgment. The idea that we will stand before Jesus someday, that's true. That is, that is real. That, 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 that truth as it stands timeless needs to be something that sinks deep into the Christian heart as we have a healthy view of what that looks like. So every word we say, every act we do, every deed we perform, we will look to Jesus and we will be judged. Now, listen, at the end of the day, his righteousness is what covers those things. But that doesn't just um, get us out into an area of licentiousness that we can do whatever we want, right? So there's areas in which we look and we go, why did I do that? Like Jesus' sins have, or Jesus' blood has, has covered me, but why did I act that way. And so, so here's, here's um, something that I, I think in, in understanding that healthy view of judgment. When we stand and look at him, we're not just going to be held accountable for the things that we do, right? So he's not going to be like, you know, you looked at pornography, you, you, you were greedy, you gossiped, you slandered, you were a hypocrite. Not, it's not just the things that we, we do, but we will also stand before Jesus and be judged on the things that we didn't do. And so that's actually what I want to talk about. Because um, to the best of my ability, there are eight things in the New Testament that we will stand before Jesus and be judged on in a healthy way. I wish I had more time to unpack the, the judgment. But we will stand before Jesus and we will be judged on what we didn't do. Okay? I think there's, um, so I'm going to start actually with the list. And I'm going to sh- share some verses with you. So to the best of my ability, here are the eight things that I think um, are helpful when it comes to these uh, the, uh, approaching a New Testament, a healthy version of judgment. Now, I want to say as you look at that list, there are two things that are going to stick out. One, um, there's a, a, a parable of the Good Samaritan, right? And so um, maybe you're looking at that, and then I want you to understand that parable, I think, fleshes itself out in these areas. Also, Jesus gives us two of the greatest commandments, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the other one is to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And I think at the same time, we see these things. And maybe you look at that and go, well, there's certain social justice things. I would, I would argue that in the, the framework of these eight things, we, we hit in areas of racism. We hit in areas of uh, immigration. We are able to process things rightfully. And these eight things that we see are we're to feed the hungry, or to provide water for the thirsty, we're to welcome the stranger, we're to clothe the naked, visit the sick, visit the imprisoned, visit the widow, and visit the orphan. Let me read it again as you guys see it. We're to feed the hungry, 
provide water for the thirsty, welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, visit the sick, visit the imprisoned. Now, how can I say that we're not just going to stand before Jesus and he's going to go, well, did you love your neighbors? Do you love yourself? And you're going to go, yeah, I think so. No, actually, Matthew 25 gives you very tangible ways. Let me read you Matthew 25 real quick, starting in verse 34. It says this, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Um, Matter of fact, right after this, he's going to look at some people who didn't do these things. And he goes, when I was thirsty, where were you, bro? When I was hungry, where were you? When I didn't have clothes? When I was in prison, where were you? We will be judged tangibly on these things. And then uh, in, in James 1.27, James is the brother of Jesus. He actually gives us a couple other ways that we're also to very tangibly um, look at things that we are to do, not just avoid. When he says this religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. So this is what real religion, following him, real, really looks like. Not just being legalistic and, and, and do's and don'ts, but to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world that keep oneself unstained from the world is things that we we do as we continue to fight sins stopping things that we do right but the things that we we are that we shouldn't do but the things that we should be doing we can clearly see to visit orphans and widows in their affliction now um you probably notice both in matthew 25 and in james 1 we're seeing this word visit okay now i want to say this from the jump the word visit is not the way that you're probably immediately processing visit it's not just going to a nursing home and visiting someone and then leaving. Visit, um, this, this word actually appears 11 times in the New Testament um, and used kind of juxtaposed at the same time with James 1 and Matthew 25 and has everything to do with, um, matter of fact, Luke 1 would say like the sun. It's like the sun rising. It has everything to do with caring for. The sun doesn't just come and we go, oh, look, there's the sun. It's not doing anything. No, the sun provides light, warmth heat the sun does any something it affects how we operate it gives us nourishment for us and our plants the sun is there and it provides and when it says visit you can easily say maybe um, in our common vernacular care for so when we say feed the hungry provide water for the thirsty welcome the stranger clothe the naked care for the sick care for the imprisoned uh, care for the widow and care for the orphan Now, hear me, I'm going to get aggressive for a moment, but just give me grace on this because I don't want this to be guilt driven. I don't want this for you to walk out of here and like watching a 30 second commercial on NBC uh, of a hungry child in Africa and thinking you need to move to Africa. That's not my goal in this. What I want you to see now is and understand that there's a flourishing that needs to take place as our eyes open to something we might not be aware of. And when we think of caring for coming alongside, it's not just praying for and hear me. I think praying for is a big deal. But right after, right after James, the brother of Jesus, says verse 27 in chapter 1, he starts chapter 2 in our Bibles. But hear me, there is no chapter 2 in the original Bibles. Like it's just one letter. So he goes from verse 27 to saying care for the orphan and the widow. And then you know what he does right after that? He goes, what good is it? If, if a man or woman comes and they're hungry and destitute for food and you say to them, go, be warm and be filled, what good is it for you to talk about how you should help, you to talk about what you should do, you to even teach your kids what you should do, but to never step up to the plate and do something, hear me, it's useless. Faith in that moment is dead. So for us to be bystanders, 
and to see a need, a big need, and what we're going to talk about as I lay this out in the areas of foster care and adoption and do nothing is not okay. It's not okay. Now, um, I'm going to share some stats with you, okay? And I don't want to share these stats so you can get lost, but here's, here's what I want to do. I talked about being the guilt-driven thing. Um, we started a church in Redemption Peoria to be on mission. We, we planted a church for mission. And when we did this, uh, you have to understand, Six years ago, when I was in a whole different type of church world, I never knew the term church planning, right? So, so I knew I wanted to do something in mission, and it wasn't until I talked with another guy and he started to use language of church planning that I got, oh my gosh, yeah, you can start a church. So I would have never thought about church planning until somebody talked to me about church planning, and that's all I want to do this morning. I want to bring up why, if this, those eight areas, specifically the area of adoption or, or, or caring for the orphan, what our role as a church needs to be. If, that, if that's something, all I want to do is open our eyes to it. I'm not expecting everyone in this room to adopt a kid. That's not, I'm not expecting that. But I am saying this, you will stand before Jesus and he will ask you, did you care for the orphan? Now, I do not know what that looks like for you, but you've got to have an answer in that moment. So um, here's why we're doing this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, um, uh, he's, anyway, he was a pastor during the time of World War II, right before World War II took place. If you don't know what happened in World War II, um, it's this guy, Hitler, Germany, Nazis, it's all bad. Well, what's happening is the Nazis, who are uh, uh, the Germans, are going around killing the Jews, but they're doing more than just killing the Jews. They're also killing any Germans that don't live up to what the ideal German should live up to. So there's this thing, I read uh, Bonhoeffer's biography uh, last summer called Bonhoeffer, where there's this thing called the Night of the Long Knives, where they literally went around to people who are mentally handicapped, people who were um, maimed, disabled, whatever, and just, and Hitler had them all killed. Now, right after this, um, Bonhoeffer, who's a pastor, is looking at the injustice in his own country, and he's saying, there's something wrong with this. Uh, we're doing things that are not okay, and we as the church cannot be okay with them. And he makes an awesome statement. He, he says this, and it's only, you've got to read some of Bonhoeffer's stuff. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is his name. Um, he, he says this, if there is injustice in the church's city, it is the church's job to address that injustice. If there's injustice in the church's city, then it's the church's job to address that injustice. And so if there is a need, when he means injustice, he doesn't just mean night of the long knives. He means neglect. He means people who are not being taken care of. And if there is something that is immediate to your context as a church, we've got to address it. And this is a big deal. You would have to be blind, deaf. You would have to be dead to not know that the state of Arizona is struggling right now, guys. Um, right now, let me show you. I, have, I think I have a graph uh, for you. I didn't show it in first service, but I'm going to show it in this service. Um, so this is according to 2015 stats. So there's about 15,000 um, uh, kids in this stat. Right now, in the state of Arizona, there are 20,000 orphans. 20,000 orphans. Now, um, before that sounds too crazy, about 8,000 of those 20,000 orphans um, are in an immediate kinship. That means their aunt, uncle, um, grandma, grandpa are taking care of them, maybe long-term plan to take care of them, or maybe just right now. But of the 20,000 that are, that are orphans, 20,000, there are about 4,500 people who are registered to take care of those orphans. So do the math with me real quick. Let's just say 8,000 um, uh, uh, of those kids are taken care of because of kinship, okay? Let's say another 5,000 families are, are taking care of, uh, you know, uh, an, another kid. We're at about 13,000 there. So that leaves us with 7,000 kids. 7,000 kids who tonight, hear me, again, not guilt-driven, who tonight will sleep on an office floor because the, this, the uh, DES has nowhere to put them. Like, they will go to bed somewhere that's not a home. 
this is just a graph to show you the age demographic in which they are. So it's not just like a teenager. You can think, oh, he'll be able to figure it out. No, no, no. It's, it's like a three-year-old. So um, the reason we're talking about this is, is not because uh, I feel like adoption is better than any other type of social justice thing or, or anything like that. But, but here's what, what I recognize. As the elders, if we continue to sit down and try to identify a global target, of um, a place that as a church, Redemption Peoria, we want to go overseas and address certain needs. Um, we recognize there's 138 million orphans across the world. But here's what I know. In the Myers home, kids come over all the time. We have an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, and a three-year-old. Kids are coming over all the time. And when it's the 16th of the month and we got plenty of food in the fridge, I'm like, yeah, give them an apple. Like, they can take a peach, sure, no problem. Yeah, oh, they, yeah, yeah, you want to come in? You can have one. You know, so that's great, okay? But when it's like the 28th and 29th, and we're waiting for that check, and there ain't a lot of food in the fridge, y'all. I'm like, um, no, you guys, you four can split a peach, okay, right? Because suddenly I become ultra frugal because I'm trying to, whether right or wrong, I'm trying to take care of my own. If you eat that peach, I ain't eating a peach leader, or, or Corbin isn't eating. We're going to starve to death, so no, okay? Here, here's, here's the reality. Well, give me money. That's the first no, um, okay? I'm just kidding, Lord. Um, okay, my, my, my point is this. My point is this. We want to think global, right? We want to think global. But we have issues in our own house, man. We have issues in our own house. And again, I'm not trying to push any type of agenda on you. I just want you to be aware of the issue. So with that said, um, I want to talk about the doctrine of adoption. So if you can open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Um, here's what I'm going to say. Um, Again, not trying to push anything on us. And if you're new, this may be totally random for you. But here's what I'll say, both parents and kids alike, okay? Um, we might not understand why, why we need to address these 7,000 or maybe even up to 20,000. That's assuming all these foster parents are actually fostering. They're just registered. It doesn't mean they're fostering. Um, uh, but minimum, 7,000 kids don't have a place to home. I, I think because we don't have a healthy version or healthy doctrine of adoption ourselves. We don't understand what it means to be adopted by God. And so what I want to do is I want to talk about the doctrine, the theology of adoption. So we're in Galatians chapter 4. If you're new, it's going to be like a big Bible study, man. I'm just going to read through uh, a verse, explain it, read through, explain it, read through, explain it. And this is what it says from the beginning. It says this, verse 4. But, okay, we're going to stop real quick, okay? Um, whenever you read a but or so that or therefore, always ask what's previous. And this but is responding back to what, what Paul, who's writing the book of Galatians to this certain church in Galatia, who's writing this, this, this letter to them, and he's talking about previously this guy named Abraham who has a family. And in this family, there are sons and there are slaves. And slaves can live in the home. Slaves can be in the home. Slaves are part of the family. But when it's all said and done, they don't receive what belonged to Abraham. Abraham has cars and houses and camels and cows. When it's all said and done, a slave got to live in the home, but a son got everything that belonged to Abraham, an inheritance. And so that first but is that's what he's been talking about. He says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So here's what I need you to hear from the jump, okay? Whatever we are about to talk about, God did something for someone somehow. It cost God his son. So I don't, I don't care if from this moment on we're, we're going to say, and God wanted to give everyone wings. 
if, if, if that was the case, whatever it did, whatever we're talking about moving forward, it cost God his son. He had to redeem. And some of you kids have on your little chart to redeem. Let me just show it so you can understand that word. To redeem it means it costs something. And in this case, it costs God his own son to die. So God looks down and he sees all of us, right? says, I want them, but I know I want them and it's going to cost something. And so I am going to send you, my son, to go get them. But to get them, you're going to have to die. It costs God his son. He trades his, son, his own son for those people. Now, he goes on to say this. So to, to redeem us, he's, he's redeemed us to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So now we get what, what, what happened. Now we get the, the actual, it's not wings, it's not a car, it's, no, no, it's, it's he redeemed, he took his son, he gave his son over so that all these people, all of us who are children of God can be called children of God. All those who are Christians, who, who love Jesus and serve Jesus are now under the banner of the blood of Jesus Christ and now we are received into adoption as sons. Now, hear me when I say this. Um, some of your Bible versions say children or sons and daughters and I think that is a horrendous translation. The NLT says that. I think that is a terrible translation. Let me explain why. Not, I'm not a sexist. Um, this is really important, okay? This, this uh, uh, section of scripture has nothing to do with gender. It, it's, it's not trying to unearth like uh, masculinity and impose any of that. Paul is bearing very meticulous with his words. And in that culture, whether you like it or not, a son, what I just talked about, would receive the inheritance. So I have a, a daughter, Eve. She's three. Uh, my son, Titus, is six. And my, my oldest son, Corbin, is eight. Um, the way it would work in that culture is when Candace and I die, whatever inheritance we would have, which probably won't be much, we'll, we'll leave to Corbin, first and foremost, a little bit for Titus, and Eve would have to marry someone. Now, you may not think that's right, and it probably isn't right, but Paul knows this is in the culture. And so he says, he uses the language of sons intentionally. It doesn't have to do with gender equality. It has everything to do with inheritance. It has everything to do with to understand because of what Jesus has done, you're not just brought in close, but you are a son. And he goes on to explain why being a son is so important when he says this. And because you are sons, not just children, the, 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 the word is, is not technia, that's the children word. It's, a, it's literally the word for sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So the result of what Jesus had done is he gets us. But he doesn't just get us as children. He gets us as sons. And getting us as sons, we cry, Abba, Father. Now, Jesus is the first and only person in all of the Bible to call God, Abba, Father. Why would he do that? No one previously does it. This was huge. Matter of fact, all the pastors of the day looked and go, whoa, 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 whoa. We talk about God with reverence and you're calling him dad? This is, this is an Aramaic word. It's not, not even Greek. We transliterated this, not translated it. it. It's literally a transferring over because it holds so, so much power. So you're not just brought in to go, yeah, I'm a child of God. No, hear me, y'all. Listen up. Listen, listen, listen. You are in. You're not just like, yeah, no, no, no. I'm, I, I. No, no, no. You're in. Like he looks down and he loves you like he loves Jesus. He loves you like he loves Jesus. And we call him Abba Father. The only other person to do that is Jesus. We're that close. We were strained and we were far off, but now we're close. He goes on to say this. So you're no longer a slave. Uh, let me read the previous one to, to continue on. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit, sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba Father. 
So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So now you're not just a son who received this inheritance, but check it out. You were not some cute and cuddly baby left in a basket at God's doorstep. Someone knocked and ran away. And he picked you up and goes, oh, that's nice. That's not what happened. Matter of fact, we're referred to in this moment as a slave. Uh, if you were to look back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 23, it says this. We, before we ever Christians, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So God did not look and go, I want them. They're cute. They're nice. Like some puppy in a window. No, no, no. Hear me. You were rebellious. You didn't want God. You were fighting against God. And more so, check this out. You were the one who killed his son. So God suddenly does this. Hey, I'm going to have you get them, but I'm going to adopt the people that are going to kill you. So, so if you can put yourself in God's shoes for a moment, can you imagine adopting the teenager that killed your teenager? Taking in the teenager, taking in the kid who killed your kid. This is not, this is not easy. This wasn't God like, yes, this is, I just, I'm so, no, this is messy. I mean, sometimes we, we think about the sacrifice of Jesus, but even think through the lens of God the Father giving his son over to people to receive those people who killed his very son. And we, were, we were slaves, but now, now we are sons. He goes on to say this. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We've already talked that heir, but I want you to notice the last two words in that. What's it say? It doesn't say, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir by God or because of God. It says, through God. Here's, here's what I know um, about this, and this is where we'll kind of transition. Um, Candace and I were awakened to this idea of fostering and adopting and seeing the need in the state of Arizona about two years ago. And we felt, felt like, man, we'd never even processed. We were never thinking about adopting, and, and our eyes were open to, to this whole thing, and we started to see um, the need, and so we started to, to go after it. And as we continued to go through this whole process, we eventually got this baby, Anna, who uh, we have right now. She's about three months old. She's a preemie, meth-exposed and um, it's just, it's not easy. It's definitely not easy. Um, and here we, we're, we have her, and here, here's what I know. Um, our hope is to adopt her. I, it's this crazy dichotomy we live in, right? Because we're praying for her mom's restoration that she would get well. But if she gets well, we lose her. But at the same time, we get her if her mom doesn't do well. It's, it's hard, right? It's like, it is. I was talking to uh, Kirsten in the lobby, and it's like the cross, right? We, we relish in the fact that the cross has saved us, but the fact that it also saddens us that he died on it. It's this weird thing. And so we, we get Anna. And let's say her rights are severed and we get Anna. Let me tell you won't, what, what won't happen when Candace and I write our will and die. Um, we're not going to chalk up Corbin, three-tenths of our inheritance. Titus, three-tenths of our inheritance. Eve, three-tenths of our inheritance. Anna, one-tenth of our inheritance. That's not what's going to happen. Once Anna is in, she's in. And she's going to get 2.5 of our inheritance, which will probably be debt, okay? But she's going to get it. They're all going to get an equal share, okay? But, but my point is this. Anna could not have just been dropped off at our doorstep and just left there and said, oh, yeah, yeah, she's yours now. No, we had to consciously decide to take her in. We, it was through our willful act of bringing her into our home, bringing her into our family, bringing her into our inheritance for her to be an heir. And this, this is God from the foundation of the earth looking at you, looking at all of your, your bad, looking at all of what you think is good, and saying, I want you. I want you so much that I'm willing to give my son over to you for you. This is adoption. 
The story goes like this, that your parents, 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 parents messed everything up. And because they messed everything up, very early on in your Bibles, everything gets screwed up. When everything gets screwed up, we are separated from God. But for some reason, God, in his beauty, decides to make a family. He decides to to, to put this thing together and restore these things. And as he does this, he's looking at us, and we're still lost. We're still prideful. We can't come to him. We're still broken. And in the midst of all that, he creates a way. He says, I don't care how much you've sinned. I don't care how far you've gone. I know you're lost. My favorite chapter in all the Bibles, Ezekiel 16, it talks about a baby who was left there, was helpless, was aborted, left in a field, bloody to die. And here now in this moment, this man comes and picks up this baby, nurtures this baby, restores this baby, gives all that he has to this baby. This baby grows up, turns her back on that man. He still goes after that baby. Now a woman. That is God pursuing us, and we are in. We are sons and daughters. And because of this, we find all over Scripture, I I found 24 verses referring to us as sons and daughters. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who receive him, who belong, uh, who believed in his name, he gave power to become the children of God. Galatians 3, 23 through 26. Before faith came, we were confined under the law. The law was our custodian, or, uh, yeah, our custodian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come. We are no longer under a custodian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. We're all sons of God through faith. In John, First John, chapter three, verses one and two. And if you ever read First John, it's chock full of children, sons and daughters language, family of God language. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are, beloved, we are God's children. This is the idea. Now we are in God's family and he's our father. This is who we are. Our identity is wrapped up in that. Now, I wish I could do a 10-day exposition on what adoption is. But in a 20-minute time frame, that's the best I can lay out to you as to what God has done, how God has adopted us into our family no matter how far we are. Now, I think there's an appropriate response to that. And here's where I'll start. Um, I've said this to you before, but when I do a wedding, I say the same thing every time. Honestly. I do one unique part specifically for the bride and groom, but the rest of the wedding has everything to do with um, Galatians 5, or, uh, Ephesians 5. And what I do, the way if you're, if you're um, un, you know, trying to wonder what our premarital looks like, we have about eight weeks of premarital counseling. I meet with them for the first week. Jim uh, uh, Ellis, who's an elder at our church, he meets with them for the other weeks, and I meet with them with the last week. And the very first week, I sit down and I go over Ephesians 5. And if you're familiar with Ephesians 5, I don't go over the part that says, women, you need to submit to your husbands. And though that's important, right? I don't go to the part of husbands, you need to love your wives like Christ loves the church. Though that's important, I, I roll down to the very bottom of that chapter where it says a man and a woman are joined together, and this thing, this idea, this premise, this action, these two people becoming one is mysterious. That's literally what it says. It's mysterious. Mysterious is the Greek word. It's, mis- it's, it's this weird thing. I, I don't know exactly what's going on. And then he gives us insight as to what it is. This weird thing, these two people becoming one is mysterious. And I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. So even for a Christian getting married, The very premise of you saying your vows to your husband or to your wife 
is meant to reflect to the rest of the world, your community, your family, your neighbor, your friends, your coworkers, is to go, this is what it looks like for Christ to love his people. And this is what it looks like for his people to love their Messiah. This is what it looks like. It reflects that everything we do, everything we are, all of our action. And I'm telling you, nothing, nothing in scripture symbolizes the gospel Nothing, I cannot, there's not in any realm symbolizes the gospel more than adoption. Nothing. That, that there is a kid somewhere who is lost, that he does not have a home, he does not have parents, he doesn't deserve your love, you don't owe him anything. And to bring them into your home, to sacrifice time, to sacrifice energy, to sacrifice money, there's nothing that portrays the gospel more. I, honestly, so um, here's what I'm going to do. I know this is really heavy, right? Like I, everyone's feeling the pressure, like, oh my gosh, I better adopt. Um, that's not what I'm saying. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I am saying is there, there, there's a um, notches, and some of you have been sitting in this room for the last year and a half listening to us talk about the Bible, and you've never even thought about what it looks like to foster or adopt, or you've never even thought about the orphan, to care for the orphan. And so maybe for the first time, all I'm asking you is, think about it. I'm not saying think about adopting or fostering, or I'm not saying, I'm saying you will stand before Jesus and he will ask you, have you cared for the orphan? All I'm saying is, how are you going to answer him? At least process what it means to care for the orphan. There's some of you who know about the orphan and you've never taken any steps. All I'm saying is take the next step and process what does that look like? You have certain gift set, uh, skill sets and gifts that can help in these areas and you're doing nothing. I'm not saying you have to sell all that you have, but, but hear me, again, not guilt-driven. I say this in as much love as I possibly can, you guys. Um, your excuse to say you do not have enough room, enough money, enough time, while at the same time you have a spare bedroom, you watch your cable television on your 62-inch plasma screen TV while holding your $7 coffee, while spending an hour on Facebook and, and watching a whole season in one night of a certain show, is not, eh, I love you, I love you, okay, I love you, but hear me, hear me, that, that cannot be our excuse forever, I'm not saying you need to get rid of your 62 inch plasma screen TV, all I'm saying is, before you buy another 72 inch plasma screen TV, think about the orphan, that's all I'm saying, because here's the other thing, kids, you ready for the last answer, because God has called us to give out of sacrifice, this is not an easy thing, this is not an easy thing, um, if Kirsten, I don't know where Kirsten is. Yeah, if you want to come up. So what does this mean? What does this look like? How, how do we respond properly to this? Okay. Um, I want to do our best as elders to provide very tangible ways for us to address this. And hear me. Um, if I had it my way, we would build a culture of addressing this issue. This issue is in our home. It's in our home. It's in the state of Arizona. There are orphans right now. And I'm not saying you need to pick them up. I've already said that 10 times. But I'm saying as a church, if we don't do something, no one's going to. And we can talk about the chicken uh, comes before the egg or what came first. But the reality is the government is stepping up because the church isn't. It's the church's job to take care of the orphan. It's the church's job to take care of the orphan. It is the church's job to take care of the orphan. So we want to provide tangible ways to do that. And, may, and again, I have no idea what that looks like. I pray that the Holy Spirit would lead you in that way. But this is Kirsten. And she's going to, um, first of all, tell us a little bit about who you are um, your role, what you do, because a lot of people don't know that Redemption Church, um, 
we've been involved in something called AZ-127, which is an organization that um, it's not an agency for adopting, but it helps people on the path to processing what it means to maybe foster, to allow a kid to stay with you for a couple days. Um, I don't care where you are in the spectrum. You could be single. You could be a college student. You, well, maybe not college. You could be single. You could be uh, elderly, wherever it is. But even as a college student, I don't care where you're on the spectrum, you can do something. And so AZ-127 can help process some of that information. So Kirsten, if you want to help us, just tell us a little bit about you and what you do and all that. So my name's Kirsten Trina, and I am the Director of Foster Care and Adoption at Redemption Church. So all 10 congregations are my responsibility in some level in regards to foster care and adoption. My husband and I have a little four-year-old, that's a little anymore, four-year-old little girl that we adopted. Um, we adopted her on vacation. We went on vacation and got a phone call and came home with a kid. So <laughs> That's that you today. Gonna, so we have outside. That's all of you today. You came to church. No, it's a surprise. So as the director of uh, foster care and adoption at Redemption, I have multiple purposes, and um, we do two things. We know that in this state, obviously, as Sean had said, kids need families, but then also families need support. So what my job is is to do a two-part thing. One is to mobilize families, and then the second one is to support those families. And the mobilization goes through um, AZ-127. It's a coalition of churches here in all of Arizona that work together to provide pathways, to provide classes, to provide training, so that you're not just jumping in that, into this going, oh my gosh, what do I do? We will walk you through that. We help you through that. We provide that. Um, those steps would be what we would call a pathway. We have found it to be very successful in terms of if 24 families go in to get licensed um, and they're not connected with AZ-127, they're not connected in any way, one or two of those families finish the process. If you go through some of the pathways and some of the training that AZ-127 does and some of the other um, organizations that really train their families, the numbers get exponentially um, more families actually finish the process. So our goal is to train you. We take you through an orientation. It's an hour and a half. I'm going to encourage all of you to do this wherever you're at in that process. Um, we just teach you what foster care is, why it's hard, why it's easy in terms of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Like God not only calls us, but the benefit that we have that the state doesn't have is that we have the power of Christ in us to do this. Um, and so that kind of bumps up your track record of doing better. Um, and then the second thing we do is we encourage you to take a basic training. It's a six-hour class. It's a little bit more in-depth. It's usually taught by the only one I've ever gone to, and I've gone to four of them, is taught by the same guy. And he either adopts a kid, gives a kid up to a family, or... Um, fosters the night before he teaches the class cries through the whole thing the whole class cries you'll cry it's great it's very raw it's very good um, it's very clear as to what this call is the next one we help you find a licensing agency and then we take you um, we encourage you to go through either the PS map class through your agency or we actually offer them through foster care initiatives it's get it's gospel presented it's spectacular um, then we encourage you and this is where it transitions into my job as support a wraparound team we take Ten people that are around you, your RC group, your family, your friends, and we teach them what you're going through. We tell them what's going to be hard for you. For you, We tell them what not to say to you, what, ask you, what to ask you. Um, we don't make it hard on you to say to your families, don't ever say that to me. We tell your families, don't ever say that to them. Um, so that's how, that's how I do and so, what I do. So you have a list of things I want you to read as well. But, yep. but before you say that, I wanted to say something too because um, this orientation that she's talking about, um, listen, at the end of the day, because we're not all called to bring a kid into our home, but, but at the same time, we are called to care for the orphan. I love the idea of even if someone's in your our redemption community, right? And they're fostering to adopt. 
you can simply go like, how can I help them? How can I come alongside to support them, right? And so there's ways that maybe you need to learn how to do that. You had shared someone in first service. Um, a, a woman had the, the gift to bake, and she was baking stuff. Even if that's simple things like that. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, and I would say, like, okay, if you're ever going to run a marathon, your, friend, your friends may never run a marathon. I will never run a marathon. But I will show up at the marathon and hand you candy while you're running the marathon. That is what God has called me to do in terms of exercise. Um, <laughs> and so that's what I would tell you is that look and see what your gifts are. Foster families are running marathons. They need people yeah. to show up to bring them. Don't bring someone on a marathon to Starbucks. But a foster family, bring your friend a gigantic 1,000-calorie drink. They're going to need it. Um, if you are, we have a lady at Gilbert who she bakes, loves to bake. It's what God's gifted her to do. She bakes cupcakes and cakes for foster families' birthday, birthdays. Um, that's what her gifting is. Um, some of you in here will say, my in-laws, well, they're too old to foster or adopt, but my in-laws are spectacular adoptive grandparents. Um, foster kids need grandparents. They need aunts and uncles. They do need college. You know, if you have a teenager, you need a college friend that you can appreciate. And then I wrote one more. I have to have notes. Um, okay, and my kid's four. And the other day I took her somewhere, we dropped off some diapers, and then we went to our restaurant, and someone at the restaurant asked us what we'd done that day, and she said, we did foster care. And I was like, oh, we did do foster care. My kid does foster care at four. It, she doesn't know what it looks like. She doesn't know the nitty-gritty, the dirty. We'll get there. She's going to figure out she's adopted pretty soon. Um, we talk about it all the time, but that's just what we do as a family. Let your kids do this with you. Let them grow up. Don't let them at 17 say, hey, we're going to foster Teach them you're going to foster at four. It becomes yeah. the culture of care in your family as well as your church. That's really good. So you'll be af in the lobby yeah, afterwards. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, honestly, here's what I would just say. At least go to her and ask her, like, a good next step. She'll have a little piece of paper that you can fill out, give it to her, and at least contact you. Again, this is no, like, there's a couple things I want to say in this. I'm not doing this because, like, we are fostering right now. Like, I'm not saying, yeah, see, we need help. So everyone should do that. I'm not trying to place the burden that God has given us on you. I'm saying this at the end of the day. God has called us to engage in caring for the orphans. So I want to help us do this in one way or the other, whether that through our community or whatever it is. So that, that, there's the, the, the first thing that I want to say before I close. And here's the, the second thing. Um, if you were here about six months ago, we talked about the pro-life, um, pro-choice kind of conversation. And, and, and maybe you disagree with this, but we as elders and, and the church are adamantly pro-life. Okay, and, um, and, and I want to say something to that um, kind of niche there. Um, there is nothing more appropriate when it comes to the pro-life agenda. And yes, we have an agenda, and we want all abortions to stop. But there is nothing more to the pro-life agenda than looking at someone who says, I don't want this baby because it's inconvenient, for the church to step up and say, fine, if you won't be inconvenient, I will for you. There's nothing more that speaks to the pro. So we can, we can parade around and, and, and boycott and, and, and wave our flags and banners all we want, okay? But I'm telling you, what speaks to the pro-life conversation better than anything is to say we will take in those unwanted kids. You don't want them, we'll take them in. That's huge. And here's the last thing. Um, this is not easy. This is not easy. I was... It was weird for Candace and I when we first got Anna. People would come up and say, congratulations, congratulations. And I, I hear what, and some of you said it, and I appreciate it. I'm not saying you're wrong in anything saying it. But, but hear me when I say this, and this may sound a little raw. We were doing this out of obedience to God and love for the foster child. We, we, didn't, like, we didn't like wake up one night and go, you know what would be awesome? Is if we got a baby who was meth exposed and woke up every three hours, just crapped everywhere, we just, we just really want to do that. We want to sleep less. 
We re- like, congratulations. No. This is hard. It's hard. I mean, uh, 1 in 24, 1 in 24 of the people who start this process only complete it right now. 1 in 24. That means 23 out of 24 people who start the process of saying, hey, I'll at least babysit for foster kid parents. I'll at least do that. 23 of them drop out. This is a hard process. Six-hour classes, PS map classes, the state coming to you, caseworkers, city workers, uh, changing the way that your pool is set up, changing the way that your yard is set up, changing the way the clo- your clothes, you- I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. You're, you're, you feel like you're working against the state. You feel like you're working against the system. But at the end of the day, it's messy. It's beautiful. It's what God has called us to do to care for the orphan. I just pray as a, a church we would buy into this culture because it is a big deal. So again, not trying to push anything on you. I'll leave you with that, that Jesus has called us to a life of sacrifice for him. If this is an area which all of us will stand before him, I pray in one way or the other, we can engage in those areas. Let me pray for us and we'll get out of here. Father, thank you so much for who you are. Um, God, we love you. We are grateful, God, for the opportunity to see even areas of mission that there are the sick out there um, and we have been apathetic. There are those who have been in prison and we've been apathetic. Um, the stranger, the immigrants, and we've been apathetic. God, and then there's the orphan and the widow, and we've been apathetic. I pray, God, that you would stir our hearts, that you would awaken us to the need that is in our city, that you'd awaken us to the reality that there are children who are created in your image, who have souls, who need us, (laughs) who need us. May that spirit of apathy leave us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would convict us, that you would guide us wherever we are in this journey. That if we have a spare room, that if we have money, if we have time, if we have abilities, that we can engage the orphan and help him. Thank you for engaging us. We didn't deserve it. We were lost, but now we're found. We were far away and estranged. We were slaves. And you brought us in, and now we're heirs. We are sons. We receive an inheritance that was not ours, but now is ours in Christ Jesus. Thank you so much for that. We love you. Praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.